T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP. Nominal, nominal, nominal. All systems remain nominal, nominal, nominal. Hello everybody and welcome to the launch of TGP Nominal and a very special welcome to those of you who are visitors from the World Space Week website. I hope you enjoy your time with us. Firstly, let me tell you a little bit about what TGP Nominal is all about. TGP Nominal is a science fact and science fiction based spin-off from The Garbage Pod, our European Podcast Award nominated flagship podcast. We created TGP Nominal because space, science, technology and sci-fi are subjects that we really enjoy and could go on forever talking about them. So why TGP Nominal? Well, TGP is the garbage pod, abbreviated, and Nominal is a common term used in spaceflight to indicate that everything is good. Our aim is to bring you the latest space, science and technology news alongside news from the world of sci-fi, whether it be on the big screen, the small screen or in print. We would like to invite the space, science, technology and sci-fi community to come on board as guests or co-hosts to help edutain our listeners. We also aim to bring you content from places of interest and social events related to space, science, technology and sci-fi as well. For our first episode to coincide with World Space Week, we decided to play in content from our Space Cadets Guide to Space, which we recorded at the UK's National Space Centre in Leicester earlier this year, with education and space communication team members Zoe Bailey and Josh Barker, who showed us around the complex and many of the space artefacts that are housed at the National Space Centre, as well as helping us to answer questions that were submitted by users of Twitter. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Right, so here we are at the uh, National Space Centre in Leicester, and I'm with uh, Zoe and, and Josh. What are your uh, actual roles here? We both are part of the education team here um, at the National Space Centre. One of our big goals is to try and educate young people in all the exciting things about space. Um, and we're also space communication, so we like to tell people all we can about space. That's awesome. And um, this, uh, the Space Centre, is, is how long has it actually been running now? The Space Centre is now coming up to its 13th birthday, so we're saying around our 13th year this year, um, and it's doing better than it has ever done before, so we're really, really happy at the moment how it's going. Um, it started off as a Millennium Project, um, and we're now all entirely self-funded, um, so looking after ourselves and helping teach people about space. And obviously, not just space, but obviously to get kids involved into the sciences, obviously they're going to be the next generation of explorers, really. Absolutely, yes. We're always keen to get new people into the sort of science, technology, engineering, mathematics kind of disciplines, and space is a great medium to do that with. It's a really exciting and thought-provoking kind of discipline and subject. That's right. I mean, that, that is why, the reason why we're here is to just expand on people's uh, horizons on what space is all about. Um, so let's just talk about where we are at, the, at this present moment, because uh, 
we're quite a long way up uh, in the building at the moment, aren't we? We are, yes. We're in our rocket tower, which is our 42 metre tower, quite iconic, sitting here at Leicester. And it's where we keep our rockets. Uh, we have three um, in the tower, along with some other artefacts. We've got a small sounding rocket, which is a Skylark, um, which is just designed to sort of give microgravity um, in the atmosphere kind of um, experience. Um, and the two bigger ones, we've got a British Blue Streak, uh, which was uh, one of the most successful British rockets that we launched. We didn't launch many of it, no. uh, but it was d- designed and did work quite well. Um, we've also got an American Thor Able rocket as well, um, which we uh, kind of look after. Um, and they're quite impressive to look at. They are. I mean, you can see the, the differences between the, the, the Thor and, and, the, and the Blue Streak. I mean, you can see one is more commercial and the other one almost looks like a homemade project doesn't it it's uh what's that actually made made from is that steel or um um, it's actually quite a lightweight, um, thin aluminium skin. Um, and in fact, what's quite interesting is because we've taken out a lot of the fuel tanks and they're used to having pressurised fuel in them, um, the Blue Streak, if it wasn't inflated um, and kept at a constant pressure, it would collapse in on itself. It's not strong enough to support itself um, without the extra there because obviously in space you've not got the external pressures and things like that. So it's, it's an interesting artefact that's up there, uh, but it's maintained in the best conditions we can. And this is why uh, when, when people say... Oh, I don't think we've been into space because you're in a very thin uh, tin can. Uh, it's the way that the metals actually react to um, space. Uh, it actually makes it quite strong, um, surprisingly. Yes, it does. It's a very interesting interplay of how, they, how everything works together and things that are very different to how they are on Earth. So things that wouldn't work down here on Earth work very differently in space and uh, might become a lot more useful um, or applicable there and vice versa. Um, you have to think about different things in a different way. As I say, the, the Thor is a, a, a United States uh, Air Force rocket and uh, you, you were saying that it's... Uh, uh, because we're doing things commercially here, we're not allowed to uh, <laughs> to film these these guys. But uh, it it doesn't matter because it's just awe inspiring just to see these. I mean, I have seen some of the uh, bigger rockets, um, you know, um, Saturn Fives. But even so, these are just. Amazing. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about them. They are really awe-inspiring and they look huge when you look at them from any angle um, here in the rocket tower, but they are obviously actually really quite small compared to some of the big ones. I mean, you mentioned the Saturn V, which is the most powerful rocket we've ever built, um, and this is probably one of these probably roughly equal to one stage of that. And we're looking at a rocket that's got three of these stages. It really does go to show actually how difficult it is to get to space and the amount of engineering and thought that has to go into it to get us up. As you say, you see the size of them. And you think somebody actually strapped themselves into one of these things <laughs> and uh, pretty much lit it and went up. It was. And that's, that's what inspired me. It was obviously, I think it inspired a lot of people, the, the Apollo missions. One of the first things I can remember of me and my grandfather was actually sat, sat there and watched the Columbia launch for the first time. and from that point it's it's something I've been so passionate about and I, I guess with you guys it's, it's similar I mean to, to actually work in a place like this it's quite humbling I would, I would imagine absolutely definitely very humbling 
and I mean the great thing because we work with so many kids as well as the public in general but it's great to see the kind of faces that people you know see when we tell them all these facts about space and when they get to see the sort of amazing artifacts that we have here it's great to see that sort of inspiration that you say that you feel um, you know in other people as well it is really great and I think that's what is a remarkable lot uh, from, from a facility like this is that if you can relay that kind of passion to kids then you've done your job really haven't you <laughs> well that's the hope but we do get a lot of help from all the amazing artifacts that we've got around here they pretty much speak for themselves a lot of the time yeah so. <laughs> Crichton what are you doing man oh sir I'm listening to the garbage pod it's a podcast I found in the podosphere So you join us now in the is this the moon the moon section of, of the, the exhibition. Yeah, we're at the very top level um, of our rocket tower, and as you say, we are in an area dedicated to uh, our landings on the moon. So, what kind of things are, uh, would people expect to, to see here? Well, we've got a variety of different things. Um, one of my favourite parts of this level is our 1960s room. Where we hope that people will come in and kind of relive any memories that they might have had um, when they were around when the moon landed. It's one of my favourite things is to read other people's experiences. So I can see that you got on the exhibition a, a piece of actual moon rock. Um, now I believe we, we were asked the question uh, about the, the moon rock, about the differences between uh, rock uh, from the moon and, and rock on, on Earth. Um, what are the major differences? Um, well, actually, there's not that many. They're fairly similar in terms of composition, the materials that they're made from. Um, and in fact, this has led to the popularising of the theory that the moon was actually probably part of the Earth back many millions of years ago when we first formed, and that something might have knocked off a chunk of the Earth that went on to form the moon. Um, what's interesting is there are some notable differences, though. Um, if you look at the moon rock and Earth rock, they have formed in very different situations. So Earth rock shows evidence of being formed in a wet, oxygen-rich environment with high gravity, which fits with what we know of the Earth, yeah. um, whereas moon rock is very dry, um, low oxygen and low gravity, which again fits with the moon quite well. So it seems that the evidence is fitting with what we're seeing, um, but actually compositionally, they're actually fairly similar, which does leave credence to the idea that it perhaps was part, once part of us um, in the past. Wow. One of the things about moon rock, though, um, and fitting in with our story of how we think the moon is formed, and that is that um, moon rock has remained relatively unchanged um, since it was first formed. So we're talking about 4.6 billion years ago when our Earth and our Moon kind of formed together. But because of the plate tectonics that we have here on Earth, um, our rock is constantly being recycled, so it's a lot younger than that that we see up on the Earth. And that's one of the reasons why our piece of Moon rock that we've got here is so exciting. Um, it was brought back on the Apollo 17 mission by Gene Cernan, um, and it's a really impressive thing, really exciting thing to study. And have you had any of the... Uh the astronauts from that period actually visit here? Uh, we have. We were looking at, um, just after we opened about 10 years ago, and we in fact had Buzz Aldrin here to visit. Wow. Um, and he came and spent a day with us, which was, uh, unfortunately, I missed it. Um, I wasn't quite old enough to be working here just then, but that was um, a really good experience. And um, we also, about four years ago, um, had Charlie Duke as well, who was on Apollo 16. Yes. Um, Tenth Man on the Moon, he came to visit as well, had a look around, spoke to our customers and our uh, visitors, um, had spent a day with us as well. So we are lucky enough to be having visited by a few of them, and we'd like to meet a few more. Um, so if any of them are listening, then you come on down. But um, it would be nice. Because yeah, Charlie Duke, he was the... Yeah, for Apollo uh, 11, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you watch anything of that and you hear the communications officer, that is Charlie Duke's Yeah. 
Wow. So you've got a, a model here of of the moon. Um, I'm, I'm assuming this actually shows you some of the areas that uh, we've landed on. Sites were so you can see how they're, how they're clustered and you can see where they all roughly are. Right, Apollo 17 is obviously where we came from, where our piece of moon came from. Yep, and so you can see some of those. And we can see some of the other landing sites um, scattered around as well. So, this is the uh, the Apollo landing, uh, Apollo 11 landing site, which, as you can see from this, how close they were to I mean, because they were running out of fuel anyway, um, to actually land in it. A quite a flat area. I mean, they were so close to not such a great place to land. Yeah, it was an interesting <laughs> landing. Um, obviously, the reports I show that Neil decided to change plans ever so slightly and fly to a different location uh, that was slightly easier to land on. Um, and it clearly worked. He clearly made the right choice as they managed to get down there safely. Um, but I'm sure there was a few uh, engineers holding their breaths as they were looking at the fuel gauges back in Michigan. I, I seem to recall that Capcom actually said, "You've got a bunch of guys turning blue here." <laughs> <laughs> But, um, yeah, it is, it's really amazing because um, there are talks now of maybe having some kind of depot or something on, on the other side of the moon. Which is, uh, the, the people say it's the, the dark side of the moon, but that it's not the dark side of the moon. It's just away from the light, so it's the far side of the moon. So the amount of people that have to... Um, correct when they say things like that. Yeah, it is, it is a common misconception. I mean, it's, it's obviously because one side of the moon is always facing towards the Earth, so the far side, there is a side that we never get to see, uh, which is why all the Apollo landing sites are clustered on the side pointing towards us, because it makes it easier to communicate. Um, but yeah, the dark side, the moon is all dark at different times. It has a day and night cycle, Same just like us. we have it on the Earth. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I heard a rumour that when the ISS gets uh, decommissioned, they're going to possibly, instead of sending more stuff to make other things, use parts of it, just move it to the far side of the moon as uh, a, a refueling station and, and things like that. So that would be uh, quite an interesting um, observatory too, um, so they can keep an eye on what actually happens on that side of the moon because, well, they don't know quite what it's like on that side because nobody's actually explored it yet um, but I don't think it'll be long before we we get back to the moon to be honest uh, I, say, I hope not it's uh, been quite a long time but yeah it's, uh, it seems amazing that we've spent so long since we've back because at, at the moment it's, it's, it's just flags and footprints but um, there's, there's so much we can learn about the earth from, from being on the moon somewhere that I think we'll end up back there sooner than later. I think things like the Google Lunar X Prize, which are encouraging groups to get together to launch and land things on the moon. We've got the burgeoning space industries agencies over in places like China that are obviously wanting their, wanting yeah. to carry out their research and put their stamp on things. Um, I think it will be interesting once we get back to the moon, because obviously there are the landing sites, which should probably be held as heritage sites, but who's quite going to look after them? Um, I'm not sure, uh, but I'm sure they will be attempted to be preserved as well. That would be a job, wouldn't it? to be a park ranger <laughs> for the moon <laughs> it would be interesting <laughs> it's great to think uh, one of the things I like is that it's something that we sort of own as a whole of the earth 
that it's not just owned by one nation. I think that's one of the great things I like about space travel and space flight and space endeavour. It's just that it kind of brings us all together. It really makes us realise that we're all on the same Earth. That's it. I mean, and that's, that's how the pioneers started anyway, uh, with, with the new world. Um, it's just the human's passion to explore. And that's why we need to carry on that. And, I mean, I know NASA are working towards hopefully going to Mars, but I think to try and cut down the amount of journey time, we need stop-off points. And ideally, going back to the moon would be an ideal opportunity for that. And to get into to, um, other areas, I think we need to have depots and things on other planets um, which, will, which will take time but um, it, it, it's not a very quick fix space is never a very quick fix uh, not until we uh, invent warp drive but I can't see that happening anytime soon not yet, not yet. <laughs> the great thing though Josh mentioned the Google Lunar Enterprise and this is really exciting because we are now sort of moving into a time where rather than it just being sort of government bodies like NASA or anything, we're actually moving into a time where we perhaps have more sort of private space flight enterprises. Yes. And that will really help in pushing forwards and advancing us a lot quicker um, in things like bases on the moon, bases on Mars, all sorts of things. Hopefully that will be something that really does speed up um, our kind of endeavours in that. Do you think by having these um, corporate companies involved in it, do you think that's going to start another space race but through the corporate because oh they've done this so we've got to do that I, 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 yeah, I, I think mean, it might I think it might be possible and in all honesty I don't think it's a bad thing I mean uh, the fact that we had the space race is pretty much what got us to the moon so uh, I can't say it would necessarily be bad a little bit of competition perhaps never hurt anyone <laughs> excellent yeah so you say we've got the, uh, the the 1960s lounge shall we head on through or? yeah absolutely one thing I will definitely say is you cannot mistake this for anything else but the 1960s. When I was walking around uh, a little bit earlier, um, you, one of the view screens downstairs uh, had some of the uh, footage from one of the, the, the moon landings, and it was quite amazing because you had a load of kids sat on the floor up by the TV, and I kind of had this feeling of that's what the kids would have been like in their living rooms. Uh, you know, 50 years ago, well, over 50 years ago. But, um, but yeah, I mean, for us, it would have been a bit difficult because it would have been, I think, something like 3 o'clock in the morning when they actually landed. But, yeah, I think that's, uh, one of the, I mean, that's one of my favourite things about the 60s room is we've got a memory wall where people can share their memories of the moon landing. Um, and reading some of those, you get people who were either sat at home around the telly and mum and dad had come and wake them up and get them sat down to watch this event. Or we had one um, that was, they were out camping with their family and their, family, their dad woke them up at 3 a.m. or whatever the time happened to me and said, right, come on out, there's the moon. As we speak, there's people setting foot on that at the moment. I think that's, memories like that, I think really did 
the Apollo era really did inspire a huge generation of people to getting into space. I think it's just so something so remarkable. One of my favourite ones that I read actually was uh, someone who said as a young man um, he was there trying to stay up as late as he could because he really wanted to see the landings and to stop himself from falling asleep he had to go out on a run outside every so often to make sure he didn't fall asleep. Um, but he had to run back as quickly as possible with his family yelling down the street because they were worried he was going to miss it and he remembered uh, that panic of him trying to get back to make sure he could see it. That was one of my favourite things um, that I wrote, read up there in the wow. best parts of the room. So, so these cards on the wall over here, yeah? Yeah. A lot of kid, kids saying that astronauts need to come and visit their school. <laughs> yeah, this is really good. I mean, some of the ages of some of these these people, and they, they were saying that this this guy is you know, nine. I remember building an airfix kit of a Saturn V. You know, uh, and it stood there in his living room for years. <laughs> There's another one. I was nine, came home from school, mum had bought a colour TV so that we could watch it, but then I think it, well, it was broadcast over it was broadcast in black and white. white. I like this one here, this was a new one. Um, the moon landing was on, and I was upset because they'd taken the Pink Panther cartoon off the TV. <laughs> I think I like that one. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is what it's about. You've got to keep these memories alive because it, even if we do go back, it won't be the same because that was a first. And a first of anything is, is remembered uh, more than the other stuff. There are some people out there that don't, don't realise that there's so many... Um, lunar landings so they all thought it was all part of the same yeah, same one, trip, one trip up. <laughs> I, I think one of the, my favourite stories of uh, the, the launch was um, they, well, they had a colour color camera that they took up with them but some, the one of, I can't remember who it was pointed it in the wrong direction and uh, they actually got the, the electrics inside the camera actually fried because they put it at the sun um, so all they had was these, these black and white pictures that they could take take and uh, people were like oh well, where's your colour pictures oh sorry I, I fried the camera <laughs> it's the old story about Neil and Buzz falling out and Buzz refusing to take any pictures of Neil Armstrong um, which is the, one of the things that I will pictures of Neil and actually it turns out that Neil Armstrong was just a much better photographer and all of the ones that Buzz took have got heads chopped off or taken from like the waist down or you just see the top of his helmet and big like big, big black skull yeah, there's one on my thumb there you go. <laughs> must be Can, can you imagine them now all trying to take a selfie? It's like, yeah. <laughs> selfie on the moon. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there are some amazing stories. Uh, um, um, Alan Bean tells some really good stories mm. about his time up there because um, he was never really destined to go up anyway, so it was quite amazing for him to go. But uh, he's now uh, an artist. And um, he, he's still got parts of his um, spacesuit that he, he uses plaster cast to imprint onto canvas. So the boot, the boot 
marks on on the canvas, and then he paints pictures of himself actually on the moon, and they are quite amazing pictures. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. So now we're in a, a quite an exciting place to be for, for myself because we are now standing in, in front of a, a Soyuz uh, capsule. Uh, but this is um, one of the oldest serving uh, spacecraft in any fleet at the moment. Uh, and it's, as you probably know, it's the, the only craft that can take humans to and from the International Space Station. Now, the one we're actually standing in front of, how, how old is this, this one? Um, unfortunately, it's difficult to place the exact date on this one. Um, we know that it's one of the earlier generations, so probably getting on for probably 30 to 40 years old. Um, this was actually um, over in a car park in Russia, um, sort of being left to degrade, um, at which point one of our uh, sources found it was like, can we have it? We'll look after it. Luckily we get it, but because it came from such a, um, an interesting background, we've not got a complete set of documentation for it. We know that it's actually, I think it's two separate Soyuz that have then been put together, so it's not all one spacecraft. Um, but it is, um, a, a, is a genuinely built one. Um, it was one of the flight spares, it never actually flew into space, um, but it was, back in its prime, um, capable of doing so. And the, the basic design of the Soyuz is, is very much based around uh, the the Vostok series that um, took Yuri Gagarin into space. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you mentioned, the, the Soyuz family is one of the oldest in serving. In fact, the, the entire family of that rocket, which is known as the R7 series, um, basically remains fairly unchanged since the, the 60s. Uh, they've made small modifications. Obviously, they added a, a couple of extra bits to mean that they could la- last longer in space, travel further, a bit more space to move around in. But basically, they've made minor tweaks for the last 30, 40 years. Um, and it's still one of the most reliable spacecraft in history. I'm still along is serving and still capable of taking people up there and as you said it's now with the retirement of the shuttle the only human rated vehicle we have at the moment and not only do the Russians um, have the Soyuz I mean I think um, they've got them in French Guiana haven't they they've got a launch pad at French Guiana that's got the Soyuz on yeah so the, Euro- the European launch pad in French Guiana can launch them as well um, and also interestingly the Chinese um, space agency while they don't have the Soyuz they have something that is very similar um, and I imagine they've probably had a good look at the plans um, in a bit of collaboration there to, to help design and build theirs which if you're going to pick any to mimic um, I think the Soyuz is probably a good one you, you can't fault it really can you it's just it's a workhorse that is basically what it is it's, it's strong it's reliable the, the only thing I don't like about it is the the, uh, the, the, the landing process which is <laughs> Basically, once you get through the atmosphere, you just dunk, and that's about it, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice and straightforward. It doesn't have to be elegant. It works. Um, it's slightly better than the Vostok capsules. Obviously, with the Vostoks, you had to jump out before it hit the floor because it would liquefy you if you uh, were sat in it. Yeah. So you had to be a good parachutist to be able to leap out before it hit the ground and parachute out to safety. Um, so they have made some small improvements, but generally it does what it needs to do and not a lot more. I mean, luckily for, for Yuri Gagarin, he was a very competent pilot anyway, so he'd... Uh, many times used a parachute in his life I would have thought and um, there's quite a funny story about um, when he first landed um, after launching he landed in a, quite a, a rural area of Russia and the people there weren't 
wasn't sure who or what he was. Um, and before they actually launched um, him into space, they actually got a, uh, a paintbrush out and actually painted CTCP on his helmet just in case people thought he was a Martian or something when he landed. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a concern. I mean, it's, it's part of the remnant because of how secretive the, the Russian programme was. Obviously, they were in competition with the Americans, they wanted to get out there first. And I mean, it comes back down to the first woman in space, who was obviously Valentina Tereshkova, um, who flew a few missions after Yuri Gagarin. And in fact, it was so secretive, she hadn't even told her family. Um, and it wasn't until she was communicating live from space on Russian radio that her family realised she wasn't at a parachuting contest, as she told them, <laughs> but had actually left the Earth behind. Um, so yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, that's the, the competition, and obviously, at the height of the Cold War, they were really, really keeping secrets from each other and wanted to beat each other to different, different bits, and they didn't want to reveal that Valentina was going up for fears that the Americans might stick a woman on a rocket and get that, that as their world first. But it was quite amazing what the Russians managed to achieve at that time, because until the Americans landed on the moon... Russians pretty much had it in the bag right away. Oh, through. definitely. I mean, they had the first man in space, the first woman in space. They had the first uh, person in orbit around the planet. They had the first animals up there. They did first dockings and rendezvous. And pretty much, yeah, until until the moon landing, until Apollo 11, they well and truly got the Americans beat. Because they had the, the first um, EVA as well, didn't they? The first spaceport. They did, yeah, with yeah. a gentleman called Alexei Leonov in 1965. Um, he was the first person to ever get out of his spacecraft in uh, while it was out in space, which was uh, apparently quite an eventful task because they'd not quite equated for the pressure and his suit inflated making it incredibly difficult for him to move around um, and there was concerns that he might not be able to get back into the spacecraft that was um, the upon So he, he strapped himself into a, a, a ballistic missile and he launched himself into space. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you, you, you're either very brave or just crazy. It's one or the other. Probably a mixture of both. Because <laughs> um, I've heard many stories um, uh, about that time and you've, you've got to take your hat off to uh, Sergei Korolev because the man was an absolute genius. here. Whenever I'm in the potosphere, there's only one place to be. 
The Garbage Pod. Hello there, Garbage Podophiles. Gareth Jones from Gareth Jones on Speed here. My name is Dr. Ryan Kobrick, and I'm the executive director of the Yuri's Night Global Executive Team. Rock the Podosphere and rock the planet. My name is Kate Arkless Gray, but many people know me as Space Kate. Hey, Mark. Uh, welcome to NASA Edge. Yeah, it's good to be on the Garbage Pod. So now we're in the uh, into space section of the exhibition. Now, this is why we're here, really, because of Yuri Gagarin's first flight into, into space. Uh, and this is leading on from that. So what have we actually got here? We've got a whole variety of things here. In fact, if we look just above us, we've got our model of the International Space Station. Um, that is our current space station we've got up there. There's six astronauts up there at the moment. Not the first of all the space stations we've had. We've had two before this, Russian Mir um, and the American Skylab. Um, but it's up there at the moment doing lots of experiments to let us know a lot more about space. It's all very exciting. It includes all the different um, space agencies, well, a lot of the different space agencies we've got, got out there. Um, I know one of the questions that we've been asked is how many different space agencies are there? It's a tricky question to answer because actually there's a lot. Um, the list of countries that don't have a space agency is actually much, much shorter. Um, but that is to say not all of them are quite capable of space flight. Um, a lot of them have had involvement in either building parts, designing experiments, scientists have interpreted results. Um, currently, the count of space agencies that are capable of sending rockets into space stands at 12. Um, so that involves places like ESA, the, um, the Russians, the Chinese, but also places like Israel, Iran, the Ukraine, and things like that as well. Right. So, well, I mean, we, we have got smaller uh, so rocketry concerns in this, in this country. I know um, Star Chaser is one of, the, one of the small ones, but it's one of the quite interesting ones because that is quite literally started off in somebody's garage and, and, and uh, expanded from there. And they do hope one day to, to have a, a, our first launch in this country, which would be an amazing thing. It would be pretty impressive. I mean, we do have a space agency, um, a little known fact that Britain does have, the British Space Association. Um, we don't quite do all the launching and things that uh, places like NASA and Russia do, but we do take an active involvement in space. Uh, the UK has had a long history of having instruments, equipment, uh, building things that have been into space. In fact, we're one of the world leaders in satellite technology um, in terms of building, so um, a couple of places around the UK that do that. Uh, but also there's obviously um, up and coming things like Skylon, um, which could be potentially revolutionary um, for space which is a British homegrown product um, that if it works um, as expected will be something that we'll be championing for a very long time uh, that's actually quite amazing the, the, the engines that they actually use on the, the, the Sabre engines they are as you say quite revolutionary uh, the way they're powered uh, we've actually mentioned the Skylong on one of our Uh, will be aware of it and if, if you go back to our um, the show notes uh, I think it was on episode 18 um, there's some information about Skylon on there so you were saying about the, the, the British space engine because is, is that the same thing as the the, the UK space engine um, it is yes they um, changed it around so I think it used to be known as the British Space Agency it's now the UK Space Agency um, it's all a bit confusing Yuxa um, yeah Yuxa indeed um, so and it, I mean the first thing that they really is launching the first official British astronauts obviously the news of Tim Peake last year being given his flight mission which um, was touted as the first British astronaut which then got lots of people confused because there have been British people in space before so the official line is that Tim Peake will be the first government 
sponsored British astronauts. Right. The first astronaut that we as a nation have paid for um, and have got a part of that. The others that have gone up to people like Helen Sharman, um, who had UK citizenship, and Pierce Sellers, who did as well, Michael Fole, um, all went up under somebody else. So a lot of them went up with NASA as part of their American dual citizenship that they had there. Some were private, um, so people like Richard Garriott, who was a private space, um, space astronaut, and went up under his own steam and his own funds. So there have been other British people, but um, Tim Peake is the first government sponsor of Richard Because Richard Garriott was... Citizenship, hasn't he? Yes. He lives in America, but he was born in the UK. So that is correct. Yeah. He was born already in Cambridgeshire. Really? Um, yep. Um, and he went up. Um, he was a games developer, but interestingly, he followed in his father's footsteps. Um, he was obviously um, one of the astronauts who went up to Skylab. Um, that would be that Owen. Yes, Owen Gary. Yeah. So you say you've got uh, some of the uh, clothing from some of the, uh, the British astronauts. Yeah, so she should have had a less restrictive view of uh, what was going on around her during her mission. 
seen dogs when they've got their head out the window of a car. I can just imagine what she would have been like. <laughs> it would have been probably quite a unique experience for her. I, I imagine it's a unique experience for anybody, <laughs> really. <laughs> and we've got one of the other uh, Russian uh, spacesuits here. So this, is this one for for, for EVAs? This one? Um, yes, this is an EVA, EVA suit. So it's an all-around spacesuit. Uh,
bounces around all over the place. So what would they have to do in cases like that? Because, I mean, they're up there for six months and very soon maybe a year uh, up there. I mean, I can't imagine wearing the same stuff for a year. It would be too great. No, so, yeah, not for that long. Not so good. Um, it is only one use with our clothes for our astronauts, though. Um, they do wear their clothes when they are too dirty, as you say, because water in microgravity um, doesn't quite fall down. It forms these kind of globules. Um, you can't really wash them. So our astronauts do have to throw them away. Um, they put them into a thing and shoot them back through the Earth's atmosphere where they burn up. Um, so one use for our clothes. But the interesting thing um, about being in space and in this kind of microgravity is that apparently your clothes don't actually get as dirty as quickly as they do here on Earth. Because here on Earth, your clothes are always pulling down, rubbing over your skin, um, and you're sort of sweating. It's all going into your clothes. But because they're all kind of loose-fitting and floating around you in space, apparently it takes a lot longer um, for them actually to get dirty. Having said this, though, apparently the ISS still does smell a little bit funny um, with all those people in there together. Apparently, uh, dirty socks, dirty laundry is a common smell on the ISS. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe... Uh sports person changing room kind of springs to mind. Something a bit like that, yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not particularly easy to keep clean. I mean, that does sort of take its toll after about six months. I mean, but then, uh, being a dust-free environment, it's not as bad as, as that, really. Yeah, well, we do, we obviously, they work really hard to make sure it does stay clean, but because everything up there has to be constantly recycled, the air is constantly recycled, water is constantly recycled, things like urine um, goes back around and is drunk again by after being filtered and purified. Um, so yeah, I mean, it isn't as dirty up there, but you have got to think that it's quite an enclosed environment that you're always in for a long time with everything being recycled. So what about the fact if you were ill in space, what, what would happen then? Um, well, luckily most astronauts are trained in some basic medical care. Uh, they normally try and send at least one person capable of doing a small surgery, perhaps up there, just in case, because, well, there's not really much you can do. You can't call an ambulance or pop to the local hospital because, well, it's several hundred kilometres below you on the surface of the Earth. Um, so they have to be really careful. So what they do is they often quarantine their astronauts uh, for about a week at a time now. So before they go up, they spend a week separated away, make sure they don't get ill or um, anything like that. But it has happened. Um, so on Apollo 8, um, there was a bad reaction um, with some sleeping pills that they took to get some sleep. And unfortunately, one of the astronauts developed uh, vomiting and diarrhoea, nice. uh, which in a microgravity environment, I can't imagine being the most pleasant experience, as the Apollo 8 capsules were quite small. Um, and also famously on Apollo 13, um, there was a feverous um, symptoms that developed uh, because of the lack of water they were drinking and to help conserve the supply. So it does happen. Um, illnesses do happen, but you have to do what you can to deal with it at the time. Um, the crews are trained to prepare for this. There's disinfecting things up there to do the best that they can. Um, but worst comes to worst, if there was a major problem, um, say for example on the ISS, where they tend to spend, tend to spend most of their time nowadays, um, if there was a problem with that or if communications were lost or something broke or something was self fire, anything like that, there is emergency evacuation. So International Space Station always has two Soyuz capsules um, docked to it at all times. Um, if there's an emergency, the crew can get into those and return to Earth safely um, to fix any problem, keep themselves safe, or anything like that. Because I, I seem to recall another first to the Russians. I think they had the first person who had space sickness uh, they can add to their list. I think it was the guy that was supposed to be the first person to launch. Uh, but I think there, there was a bit of a, a problem with him. Um, I think he had a little bit of an attitude problem, so they chose Yuri over him. <laughs> um, but he did become the, the second person in orbit, I think. And yeah, he did 
first space sickness so yes well, I mean, it's, diff- it's a difficult thing on your body I mean your ears and your sense of balance is all reliant on gravity um, and the moment you get yourself into a microgravity environment that goes away so you're constantly nauseous uh, don't know which way is up and down dizzy and things like that and if you've not got a particularly strong stomach it can, can upset you so we've covered a lot of the things that uh, are inside the ISS and, and in space flight um, one thing we haven't mentioned was that a lot of people seem to think that since uh, the demise of the, the, the shuttle um, that that is it we, we're not doing anything else it, um, you know NASA are not doing anything and um, the other agencies are not doing anything but that's not so is it it's in fact the complete opposite. Um, with the retirement of the shuttle, the, sh- the shuttle was in fact retired to free up funds and availability to do something new. Um, so the Americans are currently working on something called the Space Launch System, which is a brand new rocket that's going to be bigger than Saturn V, um, and it's hopefully going to be their new heavy lifter that will take people to the moon, to asteroids, and even out to Mars. Um, and the same goes for the other space agencies. Russia are constantly making small and further improvements. They recently started doing a fast launch path um, to cut transit times from Earth to the ISS down from something like nine hours down to about two. Um, so a more direct path by refining their calculations, refining how they fly. Um, so yeah, things are constantly changing and things are always moving forward um, as fast as possible. Yeah. Because originally to get to the ISS it was about two days, wasn't it? And then that went to, as you say, a few hours. And you say it's going down to two yeah, hours. I think, I think it's now, I think it's two, two or three hours. It's, it's almost a direct straight up, uh, make sure everything's lined up and they get straight there. So rather than having this holding pattern, they used to fly up and spend a day in orbit and then get closer. And they've slowly but surely, as they've got more and more confident with the docking procedures, um, they've just cut that back down because the longer you spend up there, the more supplies you need, the more fuel, the more time the astronaut has to spend in a really confined area. So they're cutting it down and cutting it down um, to make it as efficient as possible. And then also you've got the, the corporate companies that are involved in, in things now as well, like your, your SpaceX and your uh, Orbital and, and things like that. Oh, at the moment, are just being used for uh, resupply, aren't they? Yeah, so their, their big thing is that they're being used for resupply of the International Space Station. So that was sort of the, the kicker, the driver, uh, to get them to give something to work towards. So just as back in the space race, they had the competition of being the first to do it, a bit of an incentive to get these private companies involved. Um, NASA put up these contracts um, to provide the resupply mission. So that's kick-started that industry and will then hopefully carry itself um, to go one step further and on to the next thing and so forth. And then obviously from there you've got uh, some of the other companies that want to get into like uh, asteroid mining and uh, other um, commercial ventures. Discovering the potential commercial applications of space travel, so whether that is taking people off to other planets or if it's mining the resources that are out there um, to make a tiny profit down here on Earth or to help us survive with more resources than we desperately need are rare down here, um, it's a good way of doing it. I think as space flight gets more and more commonplace, uh, we're starting to push our boundaries and see how far we can take it. Because uh, that, that leads me on to uh, from, from the mining side of things. Um, I think that can probably lead us on to uh, uh, other spaceships that are out there um, because a lot of the different agencies have got their own uh, spacecraft. I mean, like we say, SpaceX, well, that's not an agency, but SpaceX has got its Falcon 9. Hopefully to expand on that with their Falcon Heavy. Um, then you've got uh, ESA have got their own... Um, Ariane. Yeah. Yeah. 
absence of uh, some Soyuz uh, rockets as well. Um, so, who else have got craft at the moment uh, that are flight worthy? Uh, so, the Chinese do. Uh, so, the Chinese have got their series of rockets and um, craft to get people up there and have successfully had people in space um, back down. And we've got other places that are building rockets as well. So, we were talking earlier about the other space agencies. So, places like um, Iran, Israel, they all have uh, rockets that are capable of taking certainly satellites in. Um, not only have not quite got humans um, capable space flight yet, but off to Mars um, to go and explore there so they're continually moving forward as well so there's more and more developing countries but also there's a lot of um, private companies that are so you mentioned SpaceX Orbital Space Flight with their Cygnus spacecraft and um, there's also uh, Bigelow Air Spaces who are looking at um, habitats uh, Virgin Galactic obviously going for the tourism market and um, you've got even companies like Boeing who are looking at designing capsules to stick on top of rockets to go and launch as well so it's a very exciting and dynamic time in space flight I think it's Bigelow that are trying to introduce the inflatable yes. ones, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. he comes from a chain of um, hotels across America and decided he wants to take his hotels out into space. Um, the easiest way to do that would be a nice inflatable one. Yeah. Imagine that with Premier in. Oh, wow. <laughs> Lenny Henry in space. <laughs> so one of the questions we've, we've been asked recently is uh, about G-forces and what do the, the astronauts and cosmonauts actually undergo when they're actually on launch? Um, well, it's actually something that's surprisingly low. So the launch of the shuttle, um, you get to about 3Gs, um, which is actually much lower than things like fighter jets, um, some roller coasters can pull higher G-forces than that, and things like that. Um, but the reason why it's so tricky is because the 3Gs on a spacecraft is sustained for maybe four or five minutes worth of launch, whereas in a roller coaster, you third, fourth, quarter of a second. Yeah. Um, the same in a fighter jet, maybe a quick sort of half second, second turn, and then it's done. So you can pull much higher Gs over a short period of time because it's so long, um, long duration, that's why the G-forces start to... So, is it, so that would be... Uh, well, when does that start to ease off? Is that when you actually get into orbit? Um, it starts to ease off as the engines change. So you get the initial G-forces, you fire the solid rocket boosters and you fire the main engines, you're really going for it sort of close to the Earth. And then as the rocket boosters fall off, the G-forces will lessen slightly. Um, and then as they slow down the main engines and things like that. So eventually you get to a point. And in fact, in the Soyuz capsule, they have a, um, a G-force measure, which is generally a cuddly toy on a piece of string um, to tell you when you're in space. And when that starts floating around, um, you know you're in space. I did wonder what that was for. <laughs> I thought it was just some kind of like, fluffy dice. No, it's, it's a high-tech high device for measuring when you're in space. <laughs> and um, obviously, because what you've got to contend with is the fact that, uh, especially when the, the shuttle was launched, I mean, it's, what, eight minutes to get... I think it's about eight, eight and a half minutes or something to get from, from ground to orbit. And you're doing that at, what, 16,000 miles an hour or something? Like uh, yeah, I mean, you've got to end up at about 16,000, 17,000 miles an hour. So it's, it's a pretty pretty fast acceleration oh, yes. for, for a reasonable amount of time. So it's uh, it's really, really a bit of get-up-and-go. Another question we've been asked about space is... Um, is the, what does it smell like in space? And we've, we've had a, a young lad contacted us, and he said that they'd heard that um, it actually smells like uh, burnt metal. 
Uh, was that that true, or was it just something that's uh, in the, like a, in the decompression chamber? Or well, we're not entirely sure what it is that, that made the smell, for example. But yeah, there's been reports. In fact, um, men that went to the moon have said that it smelled really quite metallic-y, um, and also a little bit of beef has been the other thing that they've said. Okay. Um, some astronauts that have been on spacewalks have also said that it smells a bit like raspberries out in space. So um, <laughs> a whole variety of different smells that astronauts have reported space to smell like. Um, we're not exactly sure what it is that makes it. Maybe it might be something that we're up there, like you say, it might be part of our space station, part of the decompression, or it might be the actual smell of what's out in space itself. We're not really sure. It actually made me laugh when um, space station grappled with the, with the, with the dragon capsule that when they opened up the hatch and they, they announced that it had the, the, the smell of a, of a, of a new car <laughs> which was quite good because obviously never been used before you expect it to smell clean but yeah it was like a, a car showroom kind of smell TGP nominal where the universe is a figment of its own imagination so now we're in the, 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 the planets gallery and we, we decided to come into this section because we, we have been asked some, some questions about uh, the galaxy and, and uh, bits and pieces that are in it. <laughs> um, and mainly the questions we've been asked are all about uh, asteroids. And um, I said, what, what are asteroids? Um, so asteroids are bits of rock, basically, out in space. Um, they're generally thought to be the leftover bits from when the solar system was formed. So a lot, large portion of the rock will have gone on to form the planets, but some bits will have been left over, um, possibly torn apart by the gravity of the other planets and things like that. Um, and they're found out there in the solar system. Um, so we find a, a large portion of them between Mars and Jupiter in the asteroid belt, but we also find them um, all over the rest of the solar system as well. Um, and they're generally big lumps of rock. It can be hundreds, if not thousands, of kilometres across. Um, they have quite a high metal content, um, which means people think they might be quite valuable, some rare earth metals that we don't have much of down here that might be a potential candidate for mining them a little bit later on. Um, and yeah, generally they tend to mine their own business sitting out there um, in the solar system. Uh, but occasionally they, they do threaten us by getting a little bit close. Yeah, that was something I was going to ask. So we have sort of like early warning systems for this kind of stuff, do we? Uh, we do, yeah. In fact, the Space Centre was um, originally one of the near-Earth object information centres um, that was funded by the um, UK government um, as part of this network of early detection systems. We are no longer funded for that. The uh, UK portion of that programme was um, downsized considerably uh, when funding was cut. But there is a global network of institutions that are constantly monitoring uh, the skies, uh, keeping track of these asteroids, these objects, to see if they are passing close, um, if there are any risk. Um, luckily, uh, we still get access to the data, so I generally check it every morning, because I'd quite like to know of my impending apocalypse if it, was, uh, <laughs> if it was on its way. And so far, the current data says that at least the next 100 years, we're pretty safe. That's, that's good to know, always good to know. <laughs> So, you say there are different types of metallic bits that are in them. Do you think that they might discover things that we haven't actually got on Earth? Um, there's always the potential. Um, space is a very different environment from what it's like down here on Earth. Um, things that we've talked about earlier when we were talking about the moon rock and the Earth rock, we talked about the geology of the Earth and how the rock is constantly changing um, and recycling the rock that's there. That's something that doesn't happen um, in asteroids. So it might be that there are elements that we have lost or we don't see much of because they've been recycled down to the core of the Earth. Um, whereas smaller asteroids, these object, these materials might be on the surface and easier to get access to. Because so, recently we've uh, there's been a lot of news about uh, asteroids and things like that because of the uh, it's Rosetta isn't it the uh, craft that they're going to try and land on uh, something aren't they, aren't they? Um, Comet 67P is it on Comet, isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Comet 67P um, and Rosetta is on its way now 
fully awake now then. She's she's awake now, yeah. And not all of her systems are on again, so they're sort of testing things as they go, turning on one at a time, making sure everything's working, and sort of giving her a slow wake up of all of her systems so that she is ready to go with everything um, by the time she makes it to Because she's been in hibernation for quite some time, hasn't she? Was it? And when did she get launched? It was a few years ago now. Was so. it 2008? I believe I think. so. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was 2008 she was launched. Um, she has definitely been um, out in the system for a long time, getting the, the orbits right and the paths correct that she will land on an intercept course it's then possible to, um, to, to rendezvous and dock potentially with them. So all this is when the space community is going to start getting excited again? Well, there's always things all the time really to get excited about, but yeah, this one is, is will be especially interesting because we've never landed on a comet before, so fingers crossed that it all works okay. We can get a bit, a bit more information on about it and see what's really inside a comet, which will be good. Excellent. So you've got some examples of uh, asteroids and, and things here, or a bit of this? Um, yeah, not, not asteroids themselves, because they've subsequently changed. They're now known as meteorites, so um, another space term that people often are confused with what it means. So um, a meteorite is any rock that's come from space that's then made its way down through our atmosphere and landed on the surface. Um, we get a meteor, which is just a sort of fireball streak that we see, um, and anything that's a small rock outside of our atmosphere is known as a meteoroid. Um, so it's all quite confusing. Uh, they're all very similar words for seemingly not much of a power reason. Uh, but if it makes its way down to the ground, it's called a meteorite. We do have um, several meteorites around that we're lucky enough to have here that um, you can have a look at. Um, they're often quite surprising because they do have a high metal content, so they're often a lot heavier um, than usual. They have this weird, smoothed surface where the uh, surface has been melted uh, by the friction um, so it's come through the Earth's atmosphere, and it calls, uh, forms what's called a fusion crust, which is the sort of thick, um, slightly melted material on the surface. Actually, see on this one because you've got the, these like, little chips here. That, as you say, it looks like um, iron ore or something like that. It's uh, it's quite amazing. Yeah, you'd be quite at. right. Iron is uh, one of the most common um, materials and elements found in, in these sorts of objects, which is why they're so heavy, um, things like that. But there are lots of other metals as well. So they think there's a lot of things like palladium and platinum metals yeah. um, in there as well. Some of the rarer metals we don't tend to find much of down here on Earth, mainly because we think they're quite heavy and they've probably sunk to the Earth's core. Um, so they probably think the Earth's probably got a similar composition to these objects, but a lot of the materials that we want have sunk well below the surface, whereas in a smaller object like a, an asteroid or a meteorite makes its way down, a lot more of these materials will be more accessible. Wow. Because some of them uh, have come from other planets, because uh, I, I remember seeing one that said that actually this was, has come from Mars. Yeah, I think the one you're probably talking about is the Nakla, Nakla meteorite. Yeah. So that was a, a fragment of rock that made its way down to Earth. Um, then was confirmed to be of Martian origin. And we do get them all the time. There's lunar meteorites as well. Um, and these bits of rock can obviously get thrown off when um, other meteorites hit the other objects. So if you get a large impact, material gets thrown out into um, the atmosphere or out into space if it's got a thin atmosphere or a smaller object. And then those bits of rock can then hurtle through space and end up colliding with something else. Um, so yeah, so there is evidence of rocks that have come from other planets um, down to us here on Earth. It's amazing to see the different uh, formations that the actual rock actually comes in. I mean, I know we get similar here with things like agate and, uh, and, and things like that, uh, which that, that, it was, it was one I've actually got there that actually reminded me of that because it looks a little bit like agate um, uh, or um, kind of like petrified wood, that kind of thing. Um, but completely unique in its own in its own right. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you actually saw recently, they, they sent a, a photo back from uh, Curiosity uh, that had these little pebbles that almost looked like they were polished 
metal. Um, my question to the community was, are there rabbits on Mars? Because the, <laughs> it looked like rabbits had been there. Because um, they are, they were, they're tiny little pebbles, but they were almost perfect in shape. Um, and it was the most amazing picture I'd, I'd seen of, of Curiosity. Because a lot of it is, oh look, there's some more sand. <laughs> but when you see something like that, which is completely different to anything else in its environment, it does make you wonder. Yeah, Curiosity's bringing back some really interesting information. It's all going really to support the idea that Mars used to be a very wet place. So um, a lot of these pebbles, these polished smooth stones, are often found in the beds of rivers. Um, and we've got evidence from satellite imagery of Mars of things like river deltas and um, canyons that have been carved by probably water, probably millions if not billions of years ago. But it's all an interesting um, insight to what's happening on Mars and what it perhaps used to be like. And that only adds credence to the idea that there may have been life elsewhere in our solar system. If Mars was very wet, maybe um, there was some there. Do you think, I mean, a lot of people have this theory that um, the reason why we want to travel to Mars, or well, we're researching about Mars more now, is because the planet is not exactly in a, a great state and we might start getting a lot drier in the future. Uh, if we can learn more about Mars, then we can learn to adapt if things start getting a bit drier on this planet. I was wondering if... Extreme conditions, 
cold, um, extreme um, radioactivity, all sorts of things, extreme heat. Um, and actually, it might be that perhaps we're not going to find little green men or Daleks or anything like that, but it might be that we can find these kind of microbes and these little tiny survivors that might possibly be able to exist. And if we did manage to find it in somewhere like Mars or Europa, it might lean more towards the fact that life um, is a lot more common in the universe than we currently know it to be at the moment, which would be a really exciting step. So is this the reason why we are exploring the oceans um, more than we, we used? I mean, I think they said something like 10% of the ocean floor has been explored. So it's, it's you know, we have, we've got so much to, to, to research. Absolutely. We look out there and think, you know, how massive space is and everything there is to discover out there. But there are so many places here on Earth that we actually haven't found out that much about. And as you say, oceans being, being one of the great places. And um, we find a lot of these extreme files, these extreme bacteria, in places like hydrothermal vents so there's a lot to learn here on earth before we even start looking because there are a lot of um, private investors in, involved in the research on the oceans and um, uh, research into uh, asteroids and things I think um, James Cameron's involved in a lot of that kind of thing the submersible down to the Titanic and then further on to explore the ocean um, to develop his further understanding of what's down there and I think and the fact that is uh, often doubted is that I think we know more about the surface of the moon than we do the floors of our ocean uh, and well we live here so it makes it, it makes it an interesting interesting conundrum should we be leaving our planet behind until we fully understood it well I, I think there's room for both because um once we've started uh, investigating what we've got on our own planet, that will obviously then lead us to discoveries that might explain a few other things that are happening in the cosmos. Definitely, all just lots of extra pieces in a massive puzzle. <laughs> Build it all up together and see what the final picture is. That's it. So the cosmos has always been something that's um, fascinated people for for as long as man has been on this planet and obviously we, we've had questions uh, regarding it and um, one of the questions we've been asked is why do um, why do gal- why does it spin why does the galaxy spin um, well we're not sure exactly why but actually it kind of makes sort of sense if you look at how galaxies are formed um, they're a collection of billions of stars sort of orbiting around a black hole uh, sort of with the gravity for that holding them in um, and actually you can't have a stable orbit unless you're moving around something so there may have been a time in which there were what we could call galaxies that weren't spinning but they would have probably very quickly collapsed on themselves the black hole would have consumed everything and then that's it you can't see anything in the air. so it, all the galaxies that have survived for any reasonable length of time have to have had this sort of spinning this movement as things move around and in fact not all of them um, spin the same way we get clockwise and anti-clockwise galaxies and also um, we see a lot of formless galaxies so we often think of galaxies as these nice milky spirals out there in the night sky but actually um, a large proportion of galaxies are just sort of big blobs sort of elliptical clouds of galaxies of, of stars and material that's just there so um, those are still moving and they've got to be moving around that central star but the um, spiral galaxies only just one type uh, but you don't get a stable orbit without movement around them and the other thing we've been asked about is um, with, with constellations. Um, obviously, we've got hundreds of different constellations out there, but are they only from our galaxy, or are they further out? Yeah, so as you say, we've been looking up into the stars for a long time. So a lot of these constellations come from a lot of the earlier people. Ancient Greeks looked at them a lot. Um, so all these ones that we can see are made out of really the brightest stars. Um, and the reason those stars are also bright is because they are closer to us. Individual stars in other galaxies we can't see. That's a really long way for that light to travel. 
So yeah, pretty much all of the constellations we can see are those stars are nice and bright and they're closer to us. And um, some of the lights that we do see out in the sky may be something that's deeper into the sky, but normally one bit of light that we can see isn't going to be a single star from another galaxy. It's going to be all the light from a single galaxy, from all of those stars together that we can see as one point of light, just because they're so much further from us. A journey to its closest neighbour on the fastest rocket will take more than 120,000 years. We're in the middle, so you see the double star. You go about 11 o'clock from there, it's the yellow one. That's us. And then the next ones are the 200 nearest stars to us. This is just, which is just amazing. sure if I've got the facts right here, but different colours of stars represent the age of them as well. Not quite the age. It's just that different coloured stars yeah. tend to have different length lifetimes. So right. our yellow star is kind of an average of all stars, so it's kind of got a middle length um, kind of lifetime. The red dwarf stars, which are the cooler ones, they live a lot longer. Right. Um, and the sort of massive, super massive, really hot blue ones burn up their fuel really quickly and don't last very long at all. So, so the bluer the chances are it's going to burn out quicker. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the interesting. I was equated to the bear problem because different colours of stars are different types of bears, but different types of stars can also be different colours. Right. Okay. Yes. So, yes. Generally, bigger stars are bluer. Smaller stars are redder. As a general rule. So then, some stars once they get to the end of their life will go from blue to red as they get to the and cool down. Like our sun, but just to make it really yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so not necessarily all red stars are small. Yeah, the stars are big and hot. Definitely not. A journey to its closest in general classification on the fastest rocket red, yellow, would take more than 120,000 years. Wow, but it is, as you say, it's quite um, hypnotic, actually. It's one of those things you can even see places quite brightly. See, if you get in close, you can see more of the fainter, tiny red stars. Especially if you look up towards the top, where it's dark, you can see so many more of the fainter red stars. Yeah, yeah, I can um, see some of those. Things that they had in Star Wars when they were trying to work out the different systems. Yeah. <laughs> this is all light up and be labelled. <laughs> Our star, the Sun, wow. is just one of billions that form the Milky right. Way galaxy. Right. Very hot stars are blue, whilst cooler stars are orange or red. Average temperatures 
So that leads us on to obviously we do a lot of uh, investigation in space using a, a lot of equipment and things and one I've actually seen up, up there which is probably one of the well known ones um, the, the different telescopes that we've, we've got out and about we've, we've obviously got ones that are actually radio telescopes that are on the earth then you've got actual actual telescopes that's uh, up in space like Hubble and you've got the, the one that they're well it's just a few years off yet isn't it the, 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 the James Webb James Webb yeah, yeah. that's a, a two or three years off yet. hopefully um, it keeps getting put back I think technically officially it should have already launched by now um, according to the original specification but it does keep slipping ever so slightly so they keep finding things oh maybe we should add this to it as well Amazing. I mean, for a while it wasn't running to its full capacity because there was something broke on it, didn't it? I can't remember what it was now that's actually broke. Um, it was a mirror deformity, they'd not polished the mirror correctly, um, so they had to refly up a, basically a pair of spectacles um, and a correcting lens to fix the problem. Because that's. There's a couple of them, they've been up there a few times. Yeah, I think it's five servicing missions. I think it might be four together. actually. Four, five, four. Yeah, I think the fifth one was in the film Gravity, so maybe that's what I'm getting confused <laughs> with. Uh, but yeah, they have done several several servicing missions to either replace bits that are getting old, um, fix it with the glasses to start off with. And I know that certainly the last servicing mission was there to basically future-proof it. They sort of said, right, let's see, we're not going to have the shuttle anymore, so we're not going to be able to get to it anymore to fix it even if we wanted to. So let's upgrade these core things that are then hopefully going to be in last for a good few years. That was certainly a nail-biting mission, that one. Uh, was that STS? 125 yes. if I remember rightly yes. um, one of my heroes up there Mike Massimino um, yeah. man's a legend absolute legend yes and I can uh, imagine that was an incredibly nerve wracking experience <laughs> for him having something that goes perfectly fine in routine training <laughs> well, the thing that got me was the fact that I was like, okay we've got to get this panel off and you got to the last screw yeah. and it won't come off yeah, and you're like thing about that is everything they do up in space whether it be with Hubble or on the space station they've got mock-ups of literally everything that they can just refer to and go to the um, oh, what do they call it the, the, the buoyancy laboratory or whatever and, and, uh, yeah. and, and um, play act if you like well it's not play act yeah, I mean, they, they, they rehearse yeah, they rehearse and they practice it for hundreds if not thousands of hours at a time to make sure that every eventuality has been thought of and um, what to do in every possible situation it means that they can remain calm and it means that when there is a problem that they don't panic and worry they can just sort of sit down and get it sorted it is great but as I say when they were doing uh, that, the, the other thing you've got to worry about 
is the fact that you, you, you're not near the, the, the space station, you're quite a long distance away from it, and obviously they have to have another, they had two, both the launch pads on, on, on the go, so you had one to launch up to the Hubble, and they had another one on standby just in case uh, of any problems, uh, which usually, when there is a problem, my favourite of the shuttles was the one that came into the rescue because Discovery was always there. I mean, after the first one that went up after Challenger was Discovery, the one that went up after Columbia, Discovery, and she, she's always been my favourite. She's a bit of a diva though. She, she didn't like to launch, but um, they've, all, they've all got personalities. <laughs> but. Um, There's a small fear. Um, there's something called the Kessler syndrome, um, which is a catastrophic um, scenario in which we reach when suddenly one uh, satellite crashes into another and that breaks into a thousand tiny pieces, which smash into another satellite, and so on and so forth. In fact, that was sort of the, the theory behind the film Gravity. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're actually quite a long way away from that. Space, as it turns out, is pretty big. Um, in fact, it's mind-bogglingly slow. I think you can't really get a good idea of actually how big it is and how much space there is. And so at the moment, there's not a huge risk of any collisions happening. Um, there is always a chance. Um, there is stuff up there. There's a lot of defunct satellites, things that aren't necessarily under control, but most of them are all tracked. Um, and we're probably safe for quite a while to still keep launching things. But that being said, it is something that is of a concern. Something that people are starting to think about. Um, in fact, nowadays, if you launch a satellite it has to be made of materials that will break up on re-entry um, you have to have a contingency plan you have to say right it's going to last 10 years and then we fire this thruster here which has still got fuel to send us back into the atmosphere or send it out into space um, and there's also ways um, people that are trying to design equipment to start to recover satellites whether that's an autonomous sort of cleaning robot that goes out into orbit and sweeps up all the old satellites and chucks them back down to earth or using lasers to burn them up or all sorts of different ideas to start to clean up the area around up. a bit like Wally yeah, possibly. Uh, a little bit more orbital, but yeah, that sort of idea. Because that was my thought. I mean, well, maybe they could, well, not employ, but some of the these corporate concerns could actually pay to actually clean up the area, uh, whether that be a man thing even to, to, to do. I, I, I'd imagine we could probably recycle some of that and, and do something with. Yeah, definitely. I think the problem with manned missions is that because the space is so large between some of these objects, it would take a very long time to perhaps get between them all to the, the rendezvous. So I think the idea is probably some sort of either automated system that was up there doing it, or a ground-based system that could, uh, like say, lasers have been touted or something, that they could use that to knock a satellite off course, which will then cause it to tumble and eventually fall back into the towers, burn up, etc. So something that's a bit more, a bit more passive, i.e. that it's from the Earth's surface, we don't need to launch every time we want to do it, or have something that then is going to do it for because that, that was one thing that I, I've always thought about. You know, if they're worried about all this space junk that's up there, why don't they just clean it up? I mean, it's, it's feasible to do. It's feasible to do, but as always, it's about the funding and where the money comes from, I suppose. But I mean, the great thing about them. Um Push them places, then actually, we're looking more towards a point where we might actually be able to service um, satellites. 
some of the bigger things that have been up in space um, and no longer used, they, they've actually when they've actually managed to get it into the, the Earth's atmosphere, and they are now in some of them in museums, aren't they? So, uh, Occasionally, you get bits back. Most things tend to um, disintegrate unless they're brought back um, on another spacecraft. So, um, occasionally, things like the shuttle, obviously, got the payload base, which is capable of bringing uh, back bits and pieces. Um, but most of the time, uh, bits tend to get burnt up. So, some of the bigger things like Skylab, when that uh, re entered, um, some of the larger chunks of that still made their way all the way down to the ground. Um, as I said, nowadays, it's sort of mandated that your um, satellite can only have parts up to a certain size. And those sizes must be um, capable to be disintegrated. Just so there's not a problem and it ends up landing on a populated area and taking out a small town or something like that. Yeah. Because you mentioned with the Skylab which I believe landed and there was a casualty which was a cow. Um, so <laughs> luckily no loss of human life but uh, you know it is possible so yeah making things so that we they burn up before they get back down. Imagine that in this day and age though the, the farmer trying to claim for that one. I think I think that was incident in which because it landed in Australia um, and the Australian government um, fined NASA for littering. Um, they claimed <laughs> it was part of theirs and it was litter and they had to pay a small fine. Um, I think NASA did probably ignore it for about 40 years uh, but it was eventually paid. Um, there was a radio DJ in America who decided that it was silly that America had this outstanding fine so got his uh, listeners to donate a little bit of money and they paid the fine off on behalf of the uh, American government. Wow. That's amazing. So the, the, the final question uh, I've, I've got for you guys is spacecraft that we can possibly get into deep space uh, for, for manned flight. I mean, how far away from that are we? We're, uh, I don't think we're, we're going to see it in, in the near future, but what are, what are your views on, on, on that? Um, I think we're still quite a long way away from it. Um, certainly, as it stands, um, the ability to keep ourselves sustained in space is very limited. Um, the space station is pretty good at it. Um, through 20 years of refinements, I mean, currently 93% of the water on board is recycled. Um, and that's all water, so whether it comes out of sweat or in the toilet or um, used for washing things or anything like that, it's all recycled through a nice purifying system and then reused to make food and other things um, a little bit later on. So ni- that's 93%. Um, that still means that there is a 7% loss, which means that has to be replaced. Um, and that's just the water. That's not the food. They've got no way of growing food up there just yet. No way of preparing materials to make clothes or repairs or anything like that. So certainly elements are getting closer to being a little bit more self-sufficient. So maybe in 10 years we'll be 100% water recyclable and we don't need to take any water up there. But you've still got to make the air to breathe. You've still got to get rid of toxins and things like that. And I think there's a lot of elements that go into making something uh, a unit that you can package off, launch on a rocket with people on and send off um, for the rest of time. I think we're a very long way away from that. Um, potential for having sort of semi-resupplied um, bases, maybe. I mean, that's what the space station does. I mean, that gets resupplied every three months. Yeah. Um, and it can last for three months on its own, providing a little bit of help. So maybe extending that, finding a way to get that to be a six-month resupply mission, or then maybe a year, or launching um, places off to other planets or the moon and having um, a slow build there. But I think in terms of full self-sufficiency, I think we're still a very long way away from that. I think really this is why we need to habitat um, different planets. We need to make colonies so that we can learn how to, uh, like you say, grow things. I know, I know we do grow things on, on the space station um, and they've been learning how things that um, uh, grow 
grow at a faster rate when it's in space, which is the same when, when they're uh, researching into uh, cures for different medical conditions and things because it accelerates a lot quicker uh, up on the space station. You, you can get your research a lot quicker than you would do if you were trying to do the same thing here. But this, what we need to, to do is, as I say, get the colonies growing on, on, on other planets and from there... Um, use it as a stepping stone to get farther and further out you, you, you've got things growing there which you can take then on board with you and carry it on to the next step and pop along um, but as you say at, at the current time not possible but it is being worked on at this present time yeah and I think the great thing to think is that everything that we do in space and a lot of the stuff a lot of the research that we do here on the ground is all something all research that we can use for this kind of future um, of space flight you know something that perhaps doesn't seem that relevant is all something that we will need that could be useful for us to learn for the future nothing is going to be wasted none of these experiments and the science that we're doing is going to be irrelevant and so everything that we do takes us another step closer to that kind of perhaps we can maybe think of an ultimate aim of being able to travel through the galaxies at will uh, Zoe and Josh, thanks for letting us come to this facility because it's an amazing place and I, I would recommend everybody come come here because um, I grew up on, on space and actually seeing stuff up close, it's, it's, it just opens your mind something crazy. But as I say, thanks for, for letting us come on board. It's been a pleasure, thank you. You're very welcome, thank you very much for joining us. Spanhead Productions are a small, independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. Before we go, we would like to thank Zoe Bailey, Josh Barker, and the rest of the team from the National Space Centre for allowing us to spend time with them at their wonderful facility. And also, John Berger from widescreen.org and Sunny from Fiverr.com. For all their help. I will include links to them all on the TGP Nominal website. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit www.tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode of TGP Nominal. Just look for the relevant tab in the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the website, which include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. Don't forget to review us and give us a five-star rating. You can also listen to rebroadcasts of our shows on the 1800 Online Network at www.1800online.weebly.com. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Thanks for listening, and I'll speak to you all again soon.
The Garbage Pod is a Spamhead production.